I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. I'm so excited because today I'm chatting with the phenomenal Dr. Valerie Young. Dr. Young is an internationally known expert on imposter syndrome, and she is the author of the award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Imposter syndrome is something I constantly hear and get asked about, so I was thrilled to have her on and share so much incredible knowledge and tips about it. I was taking notes during pretty much all of this interview. Enjoy. Hi, Valerie. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here. (laughs) So now I had come across you when I was searching things because imposter syndrome is something that is constantly coming up, it seems like. So I was searching and I kept coming across you and I was like, okay, who is this one? I started watching your videos and I was very impressed. So do you want to just tell everyone who you are and what you do? Sure, absolutely. I'm Valerie Young, and I speak on and consider an expert on something called the imposter syndrome, which mm. is a very international phenomenon. I just got off the phone with somebody in the UK, uh, <laughs> putting together a very international conference. So it's really cross-cultural. Men and women experience it, and that's my expertise. Now, how does one become an expert in imposter syndrome? You know, there's lots of ways to become an expert. I always tell people I have a PhD in Google. But well before Google, in my case, Emily, I just happened to write my dissertation when I was in graduate school on women's (laughs) self limiting attitudes and behaviors, all of which would lead to feeling like an imposter. But you do not need to get a doctoral degree to be an expert. I think we can all kind of create our own graduate program, if you will, and, Mm -hmm. and make a list of what books would you need to read and what experiences would you have to have to understand something pretty well. And in my case, I think because I've spoken at such very diverse organizations from physicians to NASA, right, to scientists and engineers and cancer researchers, but also romance writers of America, Mm -hmm. you know, social workers, nurses. I mean, so it's just having been exposed to a wide variety of fields and levels and organizations kind of gives you that really broad brush on what it's all about. So if somebody isn't familiar with imposter syndrome, it is the false and sometimes crippling belief that one's successes are the product of luck or fraud rather than skill. Is that how you describe it? Basically, it's correct in the sense that we kind of dismiss our accomplishments or abilities Mm -hmm. to outside factors. It could be luck or timing, but we could also make a presentation and everyone says that's great. And we say to ourselves, well, it's just because they like me. Or or I had connections, right? It's a family business, or I was a legacy admission to to college. People call them very creative excuses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Students who say they mixed up my application and, you know, they let the wrong Karen Brown in, for example. And I think especially for women and people of color, people often kind of plant that seed that you're only here because you're some kind of a diversity hire or pick. But it fundamentally comes down to just having difficult time really internalizing and owning 
our accomplishments and our abilities. And then we're afraid for that reason, well, then surely I'm going to be found out. Mm -hmm. Why do we get this? You know, there's no one reason, Emily. I describe it as perfectly good reasons why you might feel like a fraud. And I think you ask a great question because it's really helpful to understand the sources because I think we over-psychologize this topic. Yes. And when we do that, we miss some of the situational or social or organizational reasons why we might have imposter feelings. I mean, first of all, if you're raised by humans, statistically, you have a much greater chance of having imposter <laughs> feelings, right? Because even really well-intentioned parents might pass along some messaging and teachers as well that you know, either encourage or discourage students, but could lead us to maybe go up to be perfectionists later in life. Mm -hmm. Or to think only A's are acceptable, or if you didn't get much praise, to be kind of craving that praise. Or maybe you're overpraised, right? So then you really have a hard time distinguishing kind of good from great from average as an adult. So messaging expectations and messages from parents and other adults, but we weren't all raised by the same family and we didn't all get the same messages. So there's more going on. And that's important because people spend a lot of time in therapy, just, just mm -hmm. focusing on, you know, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking at family dynamics and there's more going on. So situational factors, being a student makes you much more susceptible to imposter. Your knowledge and intellect is literally being tested on a daily basis. Hmm. People who work alone, who work remotely or who are self-employed, who don't have that feedback and they can get in their head a lot more, they're more susceptible. People who are first generation in their family to go to college or to become a quote unquote success, they're more susceptible. Hmm. Whenever you're the first or the only or the few people who maybe look like you or sound like you based on you know, gender or race or maybe English isn't your first language, um, people in certain fields are more susceptible. People in creative fields, music, acting, writing. And that's why people like Tina Fey, Tom Hanks, so many Academy Award-winning actors and actresses, Maya Angelou, have talked about uh, imposter feelings. Really? So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're often, because they're in the media more, if you Google actors and actresses who talked about imposter syndrome, they're all through my book. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, because my editor was like, you know, why are we using so many of these, you know, kind of famous people? And it's like, well, because if I said, you know, Joe Smith feels like an imposter, that would mean nothing to you. Mm -hmm. But if you say Tina Fey and Tom Hanks and Michelle Obama, <laughs> you feel like imposter, then you're like, what? You know, that's, uh, yeah. that's absurd mm -hmm. because you know the quality of their work. But when you're in a creative field, again, it makes sense because you're being judged by subjective standards by people whose job title is professional critic. So it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. But also people in technology, you know, in medicine, right? Where you're in a field that is so rapidly changing and so information dense, no human on the planet could ever keep up. Mm -hmm. You're also going to be more susceptible. Certain organizational cultures, you know, medicine, academia, really tend to have a lot more people who feel like imposters because there's this whole environment of highly educated people and this premium on being quote unquote smart. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of factors that could lead us there. The common core reason cut across all of those categories, why everyone feels like an imposter has to do with their unrealistic, unsustainable notions about what it means to be competent. We have this internal bar mm. that's so high and we can hit it sometimes. That's the thing, right? <laughs> we know we're capable of brilliance, but if we can't hit it 24 seven, then we feel shame. We feel like we're an imposter. 
And you start to think it was a fluke. Yeah, absolutely. And we feel shame. Let me be clear. If you fail, if you don't get the job, if you don't get the big account, if you're in your own business and you don't get the client or you kind of flub your presentation or whatever it might be, you could be disappointed. And that's Mm -hmm. normal, but not ashamed. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference is people who feel like imposters, we experience shame when we fall short of these unrealistic, unsustainably high standards. I know myself, I've really struggled with it. I started my first company in 2009. And, you know, coming from a small town, being an entrepreneur was never a thing. I wasn't familiar with it until I had read a book. And I didn't even graduate high school. So Mm -hmm. I worked my butt off. And after a few years, when I really started to get success and momentum and getting recognized and winning awards and being featured in, you know, Forbes and different things like that, I really felt like an imposter. And as a result, whenever I would do public speaking or have an important meeting, I would be so incredibly nervous and I would be tripping over my words and I couldn't articulate things that I knew like the back of my hand because I just felt like I didn't deserve to be there and that it was all just a fluke, you know? Mm -hmm. I just was lucky or because I was a blonde young woman, I had this success. I never actually chalked it up to, no, you worked your butt off, you figured Mm -hmm. it out and you deserve to be here. Absolutely. And it just, it took so long and I still struggle with it from time to time. Sure. But how do you tell people to start to manage it and get over it? Can you get over it? You know, I think some people do, but that's not my goal. My goal is to give people the information Mm -hmm. and the insight and the tools so that when you have a normal imposter moment, you can talk yourself down faster. Mm-hmm. So instead of having a whole imposter kind of life, <laughs> you can have an imposter moment or maybe you know, a 24-hour news cycle, but not have it be... And for some people, it really is crippling. I think you used that word earlier. For some people, it really is debilitating. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, we tend to focus, I think over-focus on imposter syndrome being something that impacts high achievers. And certainly there are people who go on to you know, have remarkable, very public um, achievements. Uh, Howard Schultz, uh, the CEO, the founder of Starbucks, has talked about imposter syndrome. Wow. You know, so there's kind of that category of people or have very successful businesses. They're entrepreneurs. But then there's another whole category of people for whom it has the opposite effect. People whose unconscious coping strategy is to fly under the radar. So they may start their business, but they don't grow. They don't scale their business. People who you know, don't speak up and ask questions in meetings or classes or share ideas, they don't go for more challenging opportunities or clients or appointments or this notion that if I can kind of keep my head down and keep it small, then it's less risky. It protects them from disappointment, mm-hmm. failure, criticism, scrutiny. Well, that's what I used to do. I used to cancel so many public speaking events and so many meetings at the last minute. And because I felt like if I put myself out there, then I was going to get found out. Yeah, absolutely. And be thought of as dumb. Exactly. And, and, and let's say, for example, you made a presentation, either one of us that matter because I'm a public speaker, but mm-hmm. you know, said something, quote unquote, dumb. The difference is that people who feel like imposters, we might say to ourselves, oh my God, I'm so stupid. Yes. Versus saying to yourself, I felt so stupid. Hmm. Those are really different things Mm -hmm. because we all feel stupid from time to time. And I tell people, 
if you don't have an opportunity to feel stupid sometime in the next 24, 48 hours, <laughs> then I'm scared for you. Because <laughs> it means you're not learning. You're not growing. Mm -hmm. So we all feel stupid from time to time. So it's all really about reframing the mind. It is. It's normalizing imposter syndrome to realize, you know, put it into context, to recognize 70% of people have these feelings at one time or another. And it's about recognizing that people who don't feel like imposters, and I don't mean arrogant, overconfident blowhards, the smartest guy in the room, because we don't want to become that either. The other 30%, some of them are that arrogant know-it-all. But another part of that 30% we can learn from. You know, these are people who are genuinely humble, but they have just said, you know, I'm just, I just never felt this way. Hmm. And we can learn from them because they're no more intelligent than we are. They're more competent, qualified, talented. It's just that in the exact same situation where you and I might have an imposter feeling, they are thinking different thoughts. Yeah, that's it. Do you still feel imposter syndrome? You know, I have from time to time, but I talk myself down much more quickly. I'll give an example of, of how taking my own advice has worked for me. I was speaking in front of 400 healthcare executives in Orlando at a conference, and I started coughing. I had a dry throat. I had to step to the side of the stage, get my water, take a drink of water, and come back. Mm -hmm. And so I said to the audience, how many of you right now, if this was you up here speaking and you started coughing, how many of you would be like mortified? And a bunch of people raised their hand. And I said, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, I'd rather not cough, but also I put things in perspective more quickly now. Mm -hmm. No one stormed out of the room. No one said, I am not listening to this coughing woman one more second, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was no big deal. We all could go on with our miserable lives, right? Coughing or no coughing. So <laughs> it's about just putting things into perspective more quickly. And to be able to say to ourselves, well, aren't I entitled to have an off day once in a while? I think we need to recognize those thoughts. Because I think a lot of these thoughts we don't even notice, and that is what's creating it. So then if we can start by recognizing the thought that pops into our head, then we can work on reframing it. You're absolutely right, Emily. It starts with becoming consciously aware of the conversation going on in your head when you're having a normal imposter moment. And then just giving yourself 30 seconds to step back and say, if I could call in the scriptwriters, <laughs> play the part of me right now in this role, and they didn't feel like an imposter, how would they think about the exact same situation? Mm -hmm. What do you tell business owners if they have a team? How do you help your team mitigate these feelings? I would do the exact same strategies to normalize, reframe, and then to help them kind of keep going regardless of how confident they feel. Mm -hmm. You know, there's things that organizations can do because there's not only cost to the individual, but there's also cost to the organization. You know, the reason why spoken over 90 major colleges and universities in the US, Canada, Japan, uh, the UK, and Europe. You're busy. <laughs> I'm busy. You know, I speak at you know major, huge corporations all over the world, and and the only reason I mention that is that they're not bringing me in because imposter syndrome is an interesting self-help topic. Mm -hmm. They bring me in because they realize that there are consequences that feelings lead to behaviors, and those behaviors have consequences not just for the individual but also for the organization. That mm -hmm. is an organizational cost. The behaviors are things, uh, Emily, like, as I said, flying under the radar, that would be one. Mm -hmm. Procrastination. Oh, yes. 
And that's huge for entrepreneurs, right? Because <laughs> nobody's, especially, you know, if you are the boss, no one's making you do something. Mm-hmm. So especially big, hard, complicated new initiatives and projects of the things we're most likely to procrastinate on. I always tell people when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation to become Dr. Valerie Young, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, <laughs> Massachusetts. <laughs> and do you think that's because we're afraid to fail? Well, I think, you know, I think, first of all, procrastination is normal. I think everyone procrastinates. We're hardwired to avoid things that are big, hard, challenging, difficult, or we just don't like to do, mm-hmm. you know, bookkeeping or whatever, you know, things that just aren't your gift or interest at any level. But I think from an imposter syndrome point of view, we might procrastinate because, well, let me give you an example. Years ago, there was a young woman who really wanted this very competitive internship in Washington. It was going to really move her career ahead. But to get it, she had to complete this big essay, very weighty application process. And she had six months to go through this process and get everything together. She waited until the day before, did it the last minute, sent it in, and she didn't get the internship. So on the one hand, procrastination allowed her to say, well, you know, I'm disappointed, but I'm hardly surprised. Hmm. You know, she knows it didn't reflect her best effort. But the rub is, if she had been successful, she wouldn't have felt deserving. Mm-hmm. She would have felt like, fooled them again. And when I get to Washington, they're going to figure out, you know, I don't really deserve to be here. And then sadly, for a lot of people, that turns into never starting or finishing a business plan, the big project that really could scale your business, or different ways we might sabotage ourselves. I met a woman in Canada who had this big aha moment. She realized she was just starting her business. She had the meetings with a new client, and she'd given the person the wrong directions twice in a row. Oh my goodness. And realized that unconsciously, she was trying to like sabotage her success. It could be alcohol or substance abuse, or you, know, you keep changing the direction of your company constantly. You know, yeah. there are people who just change their business model, you know, every couple months. Those are ways that we might be sabotaging our success. And then I think one that a lot of business owners fall into is over preparing and over orchid. Hmm. And not, I mean, let me be clear. I've been self-employed for over 25 years. I mean, I know how hard, you know, entrepreneurs work. Who is the woman on Shark Tank? Barbara Cochran? No, the other one. The one who's on QVC, all the QVC products. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't think of her name. I can picture her, but she said basically entrepreneurs are the only people she knows who are willing to work 80 hours a week for themselves so they don't have to work 40 hours a week for someone else. That's true. Right? I don't mean good old-fashioned hard work, but I mean, there are people who become like insane workaholics out of the sense that I have to, because if I slow down for a second, it'll all fall apart, right? That, huh. that I'm trying to cover up my supposed ineptness. I'll give you an example. Oh There's my gosh, woman, I feel like that's me. <laughs> I'm totally forgetting this woman's name. Cybril Nigris in Vancouver. I've met several several times. She's an incredibly lovely woman. She was the co-founder of the first domain registration company in Canada hmm. at the same time that she and her husband owned one of the biggest commercial construction companies in Vancouver. And she had accomplished more by the time she was 30 than most of us will in our entire lives. But she was doing it on three or four hours of sleep a night. You know, the janitors would find her in her office, you know, in the morning when they came to clean. And she ended up with a bleeding ulcer. Oh, my gosh. And she then realized that it was really about her trying to outrun the no-talent police. Hmm. 
And now, I mean, she's just incredibly, she's an incredible woman. And she's talked about, written about her own posture. She'd be a great person for you to interview, by the way. What's her name? Sybil? Uh, Cybrel. I can send it to you. I want to say C-Y-B-R-E-L-E. Interesting. Or Cybelle. And so she's okay now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And she's spoken public about it. Yeah, she's on the Canadian Mint. Okay. Uh, Did she pivot afterward? Yeah. I mean, Out I of entrepreneurship? She, yeah, I think like all of us, she's talked herself down faster now. <laughs> but is she still in business for herself? Yeah, she's still, she actually bought out the other people who she founded uh, the domain registry. I think it's names.ca oh, okay. or... Okay. Uh, you can find her. Mm-hmm. Probably just, I guess. Yeah. Do you find, I don't know if there's any way of measuring this, but that it's mainly women who have this more so than men? A lot of men feel this way. <laughs> um, you know, I think it depends on the field. There's, for example, a study medical students found, I think it was 49% of the women identified with imposter syndrome and about a quarter of the men. Okay. You know, and then other studies find no difference. In the audiences I speak to, for example, I'll speak at a law firm and I'll get an email later from a guy who says, I feel like an imposter because I'm the head of marketing at a billion dollar international law firm and I don't have a law degree. Hmm. I feel like an imposter. I think for a lot of reasons, women as a group are more susceptible. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just as I would say any group for whom there are stereotypes about competence or intellect are going to be more susceptible. And that could be based on, you know, race or gender or disability. You've got more of that kind of pressure to represent your entire group, especially if you are in an area like in a STEM field, for example, or a very traditionally male dominant business that you might have chosen. Mm-hmm. There is much more kind of pressure to represent your entire group. Hmm. I was watching your TED talk and you had said some really interesting things. I know that you had mentioned that your body doesn't know the difference between excitement and fear. Mm-hmm. So when you're going to say a speech or whatever, and you're really scared, you could train it to think that it's excitement. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, because often what I ask my audiences, and I think I did it in that, that was a six minute TED talk. That was the hardest thing I ever did. They only, gave us, they only gave us six minutes. I couldn't so, believe how short it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard you know, to have a beginning and middle and an end in six minutes. Um, <laughs> But, you know, basically what I asked the audience was how many of you would love to feel confident 24-7 and people raise their hand and my response is good luck with that. (laughs) You know, that's not how it works. So we all are going to have moments of fear, moments of confidence. Somehow we have conflated confidence with competence. And so we think the fact that we might even struggle with confidence from time to time kind of proves I must be an imposter. Oh my gosh, Yes. Because if I was really competent, I'd always be confident. Yes. Some of the most successful entertainers and singers on the planet have horrible stage fright. And Chris Rock is a great example of someone, before he does the late night talk shows, he goes out and does a couple of nights of stand-up to kind of warm up for it. You know, so you think of somebody like Chris Rock, clearly he's highly skilled in what he does. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he's afraid, but I'm saying, you know, we need to recognize that we're always going to be getting better and improving and learning and growing. And if you're doing something you haven't done before, that's new or bigger stage or whatever that is, yeah, you're going to have some normal performance anxiety. So you might as well tell yourself as you're walking up to the podium or into the big client meeting or in to ask your boss for promotion or whatever it might be, you just have to keep saying to yourself, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> it's the same sweaty palms, nervous stomach, dry throat, same response. But it's much better to be excited than, you know, 
terrified. <laughs> yes, because then once you tell yourself you're scared, then you get more scared. <laughs> and now people, you know, I'll be standing on the wings to go out and give a talk. And every so often somebody says, are you nervous? And I say, no, <laughs> I'm really excited. Are you nervous? No, I'm really, now I am genuinely excited. It takes a while to, you have to keep telling yourself this new message over and over. Mm-hmm. And now I am excited. Now the TED thing, that was stressful. Yeah, I can imagine. It was really stressful because it was at TED headquarters. Chris Anderson was there who owns TED. Uh, it was basically an audition for the big <laughs> TED stage, which I kind of figured out when I got there. <laughs> you know, It was a smallish room. And so, you know, like very bright lights, big cameras, the people in the front row, I could have reached out and touched them. I'm not used to people being like right on top of me when I'm speaking. And it was all TED speakers. Oh, gosh. And I lost my train of thought in the middle of that talk. Oh my goodness. Which was my biggest fear because I had practiced that thing hundreds of times, timing it over and over and over to not go over the six minutes. And the day before in the rehearsals, there was a guy who, he lost his train of thought. And then actually in the actual, there was like 10 of us, I think, who did that that day. He lost his train of thought for like three minutes, but they do a lot of editing. (laughs) I always thought they had screens down at the bottom with prompts for the speech. Oh, no, 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 no. I had said those words thousands of times, but not in the order that I was doing it in Mm -hmm. because I had to do six minutes. So my brain, when I say X, my brain wants to kind of move to point Y, but that's not what you know I could do in a six minute period. So I can't remember where the moment was, but all of a sudden I just, I didn't know what was next. So what did you do? I just kept talking, you know, and it's estimated that up to 70% of people have these feelings at one time or another. And then somehow that got me back on track. And then I wow. finished my, <laughs> my thought. I think that's my greatest fear is to be speaking and lose my train of thought and just be standing there. You know, like, ah, uh, that would have been harder to go. Does anybody know what my next thought is? <laughs> <laughs> Mine. <laughs> but sometimes I'd be interviewed and I can't remember the question. And I just laugh and say, I'm sorry, what was the question? Again? Yeah. <laughs> like, we're all human. Just, you know, roll with it. It's fine. If we can laugh at ourselves, then I think that relieves the most awkward of situations. And it often does make a good story later on. Well, and you know, I use these examples. And the reason why when I was talking with healthcare executives and I said, how many of you be mortified if you coughed? And I don't care. It's like, I wanted to use it as a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. We all know what it's like to be in a meeting or a class and we're not understanding, but we don't want to raise our hand Yes, because we don't want to sound stupid. We've all been there. And then somebody else asks our question, And the person in the front of the room says, oh, that's brilliant. You're like, oh, man, that was my question. (laughs) And so my point is, it's not about knowing everything. It's about not knowing with confidence. Yes. It's about raising your hand and saying, I'm not following. Could you explain that another way? Or do you mean this? I'm unclear. And everyone will be relieved because a lot of people have the same question. But it also signals to yourself, if no one else, that we're all entitled to not understand. Mm -hmm. We're human. And when you think about it, if we knew, Emily, that we were entitled to make a mistake, have an off day, not know the answer, struggle to master something, there'd be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Exactly. It's so bizarre that we've got to learn this, that we've put so much pressure on ourselves and that we are in this situation. Like you said, 70% of people, that's an incredible amount of people. It is. It is too bad. It's too bad that they're not teaching resilience early on in school. Yes. 
to help people understand like, well, how we learn and how some things are going to be easy for you. And then something is going to be hard for you. And the hard stuff, it's not because you're not quote unquote smart. I mean, I hate that word. I never use that word with kids. It's about for you, you might have to work harder and get some tutoring and some help. You know, I spoke at a private school on the Upper East Side and they have, you know, wonderful tutoring program there. But these kids like second, third grade, they will not go for tutoring. Oh my gosh. Because they don't want other people to think they're stupid. Yes. <laughs> Even the topic of imposter syndrome, a lot of people probably don't want to talk about it or admit that they have it. Or they don't even know that there's a name for it, mm-hmm. you know, or that millions of other people feel the same way. I think it should be part of any new employee orientation. Oh, that's new, a great idea. New student orientation. It could be in the employee resource book. I mean, it, why is this coming as such a big surprise when Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, the two psychologists who coined the term the imposter phenomena in 1978, why in the year 2020 is this still coming as a surprise to so many people? We're just hearing about it for the first time. Exactly. So there was a quote, actually, that I had heard you say from Daniel Boone. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah. You know, it's about reframing. He said, I was never lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. <laughs> yes, that's it. It's a very different way of looking at the exact same situation. If that was perfect. I loved that. So you have the one book. Yes. Are you going to, do you think you'll write any more? I hope not. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I hate writing. I hate writing. That was one of the hardest things I ever did, just editing, 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 editing. You know, oh, my um, gosh. You know, I'd spend weeks writing, you know, five pages, and I'd print it out and write all over it, cross things out, and then, you know, type it back in, print it out, write all over it, over and over. And then I might, in a couple of weeks, I might go, this is crap, and just get rid of the whole section. You know? Ah. So I don't really care for writing. I mean, that said, I hate the title of my book for lots of reasons, so I wouldn't mind taking a lot of the core concepts. Mm-hmm. writing a book like half the length and aiming it more broadly at men and women and looking at organizational solutions. But something you could read flying cross country on an airplane. Mm-hmm. So I might do that. Do you think that putting the word woman in there really limited your audience? Well, yeah. And that Random House really wanted it just for women. They said men don't buy self-help books, but then they made it a business book. Ah, and men do buy business books. They sure do. And I understand their reasoning. I mean, a lot more women were talking about imposter syndrome in 2008 when I got the big book deal. So I get it. But I hate that. Well, first of all, it does leave out men who a lot of men really painfully experience imposter feelings, but also the secret thoughts of successful women. So many women would see that description and they would assume it's not for them. They would think, hmm. oh, successful woman. That means that, you know, exactly. a company the head of a country. I've heard from tenure professors, senior executives who said, your book was sitting on my desk. And someone came in and said, oh, what are your secret thoughts? And they, <laughs> they went, I realized they were talking about me. For a lot of reasons, we don't resonate with that term. It could mean someone who didn't finish high school, who started a business. It could mean the first year student in an engineering program at university. It could mean all kinds of people. So I hate that they called it successful women. I think that's more limiting than anything. Hmm. Because my mom, who has those thoughts, if she saw that, she would be like, mm, no, that's not for me. I'm not successful. That's exactly how her train of thought would go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I fought against it. And I actually have a whole chapter that would explain why that title. Oh, <laughs> isn't that, that interesting? 
<laughs> yeah, but my editor liked it. The publisher liked it. My agent liked it. And I was like, okay, Valerie, they all been in this business for decades and you're new to this big publishing house. So, and I'm sure they thought it was clever and it could have gone that way. Of, oh, everyone's you know hankering to learn the secret thoughts. Um, I like books that explain what's in it right in the title. Feel the fear and do it anyway. You know what that's about. Yes. Like my friend Barbara Winner's book, Making a Living Without a Job. You know what's in it. Even the seven habits of highly successful people, you know what you're reading. So I would have rather it be called something like How to Feel as Bright and Capable as Everybody Thinks You Are. Hmm. And then keep the same subtitle, but you know, Why Capable People Experience Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. That's the subtitle of my current book. And do you list step-by-step what to do? Yes and no, because I'm trying to go through the different layers. So I have a whole chapter on the legitimate role that things like luck, timing, connections, personality play in everyone's success. Hmm. So that instead of constantly dismissing things or minimizing it to recognize well, maybe you did get a lucky break. Maybe you were in the right time, you know, right place. But what you did with that, that matters. Exactly. There are plenty of really well-connected people who went to high school in really affluent communities who had all the opportunities and connections in the world, but they failed did to rise. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a chapter that's called, It's Not All in Your Head, because it looks at all the ways that unconscious bias leads both men and women to assume, for example, when going for venture capital, you know, there's tons of research on unconscious bias, but when going for venture capital, they would have studies where they'd have a man read a paragraph with a pitch to try to get investments. And then they have a woman read the exact same pitch. The men's pitch was consistently rated as much more professional, more worthy of money, the exact same Hmm. thing. And there's hundreds of studies well, look at imposter syndrome. They had a study where they had men and women performing like a puzzle or a task. And then they would ask observers, why do you think that the people were successful? If it was a man, the observers were more likely to say he was clever, he was resourceful. When a woman was successful, the observers were more likely to say she stumbled upon the conclusion, right? She just kind of lucked out. If women specifically hold themselves to this really high bar, it's probably because on some level we know we exist in a culture, and this is true also for people of color, where we have to be super whatever. Yeah. It was like when Kylie Jenner was on Forbes a year ago, I think it was, as the youngest ever billionaire. And everybody's response was, ah, well, she was born into it. She was given the platform. It was luck and it was circumstance. And there's so many people that are born into wealthy families. And she took that platform and she turned it into a billion dollar company. Yeah. But we're all so quick to dismiss it and explain it away and take away from her accomplishments, even though she is worthy of them. And (laughs) it's just a type of world that we live in. Absolutely. So the point that I was making is, yes, the book tells people what to do, but I'm also needing to have people understand what is the context, where these feelings come from, Hmm. what's luck got to do, got to do with it. (laughs) So they can reframe (laughs) that. You know, I have a chapter on why this notion of faking it till you make it is more complicated for women and why we have to. I have a chapter that helps people develop a little more chutzpah to kind of recognize that, especially a new job or starting a business, you're winging it. We have to get much more comfortable with kind of flying by the seat of our pants. True. My multi-millionaire online business owner friends, their mantra is half ass is better than no ass. 
<laughs> and they don't mean do a bad job. They mean you got to get version one out the door. You got to start somewhere and then you can course correct and improve as you go along. Absolutely. And if you put on a conference, year two is going to be better than year one. Year three is going to be better than one and two. Every year you're going to keep improving and getting better and better and better. But so many people are reluctant to even start unless it's absolutely perfect right mm-hmm. out of the gate. There was a quote I saw and it was something along the lines of, if you're not embarrassed by your first product or your first launch, then you waited too long. Yeah, absolutely. There was one last thing I wanted to ask you. Now, you had mentioned in one of your interviews that you have 10 ways to combat. Do you still use those? I don't. I don't. Okay. So you've changed. Well, I have. And here's the reason is I used to give people 10 things they could do. Mm -hmm. And then there would be an evaluation and people would say, this was really great, but I wish he told us more things we could do. (laughs) And I would think, well, maybe I should give him 20 right? Or maybe 80 or like 300, like what's a good number? Or they would come to the microphone at the end and they say, this was really helpful, but is there anything else we can do? And my response, Emily, was always, well, of the 10 things I just gave you, what have you tried? And they would say, well, nothing, but is there anything (laughs) else we can do, right? So this went on for decades and it was like this nut I could not crack. Like, what am I doing wrong? And it suddenly hit me one day that what they wanted was to walk into the room feeling like an imposter and walk out of the room not like an <laughs> imposter. And that's not how it works. Feelings are the last to change. So the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is stop thinking like an imposter. So now I give people three things and they're much happier. And the three things are to normalize imposter syndrome by putting it into a context, whatever that context is, whether it's you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence, whether it's being in a particular field, whether it's working alone, again, things that I've shared earlier about the different sources of imposter feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, recognizing that fear goes with the territory. If you're trying something new or different or hard or big or scary. The second one is to reframe. Become consciously aware of the conversation in your head when you have a normal imposter moment and then reframe it the way a non-imposter would. Reframe competence, reframe failure mistakes and criticism, and reframe fear to be excitement. And then the last one is to keep going regardless. So keep going regardless of the messages you might have gotten growing up. Keep going regardless of being on the receiving end of that pressure to represent your entire group or stereotypes. And certainly keep going regardless of the organizational culture you're in or the field. And especially to keep going regardless of how confident you feel. So many people, and especially women, not uniquely, but I see so many women not starting their businesses, not scaling their business because they're waiting, unconsciously, I think, waiting to feel more confident and more ready. And that's not how it works, right? You got to change your thoughts, even though you don't believe the new thoughts in the beginning or entirely, and then change your behavior, do the thing that you think don't think you can do, jump in, realizing you're not going to know everything, but we're all smart enough to figure it out. And then over time, the feelings will catch up. So keep going regardless of how confident you feel. Love it. Those are perfect. So now, where can people find more information about you? It could not be easier because it's impostersyndrome.com. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Perfect domain. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I was actually taking notes. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you, Emily. I hope your listeners find it useful. It was a great interview. You did an outstanding job. Oh, amazing. Amazing. 